I don't I really don't have any regrets I really don't I've, I've lived exactly how I've wanted to I've tried my hardest every single time I didn't win the matches that maybe I should have always won or but I really gave it my all so that for me is enough Hello everybody, welcome back to The Body Serve, I'm Jonathan. And I'm James. Wimbledon is over. Thank how, the Lord. How did you manage? <laughs> um, I don't know, I we needed a, a kind of an extra day. We were really busy, we had house guests, we were working. Um, I think we will benefit from a day's distance from this event. I think you will benefit from a day's distance. <laughs> <laughs> I definitely will. I'm going to be way more charitable than I would have yesterday. Where so as to not put you in a bad mood right off the bat, we'll start with the men rather than the women, and uh, we have a repeat champion in Novak Djokovic. Djokovic has now won five Wimbledon's, fast court king, sixteen majors. It uh, it just seems like it's never going to stop with him. Fast court king. Well, I'll I'll hear arguments otherwise, but okay. I mean, he, I'm sure he will make the argument like anybody else in this era that they could have had. Three, four, five French Opens if it weren't for Rafa Nadal. Yes, I think and that, I agree. that does a disservice to the all-court nature of his game. Okay, it was a flippant comment. Okay, okay. One yeah. of many, I'm sure, on this episode. Here I am trying to compliment him, and you're shouting me down already. But you should, you should know that there are no compliments that you can pay any of the big players without it being taken as an affront by some. I know, so I'm just going to be honest and upfront, and the, may the, the chips fall, lay as they... What? May the chips fall where they may. Oh, that's it. Yeah. I'm the one who is correcting you on <laughs> an expression. This final, I feel at times felt like a classic, and at other times felt a little scratchy, a little... Trash. A little... Uh... I think trash is the word you're looking for. <laughs> the second set from Djokovic was... Trash. Obviously atrocious. <laughs> we saw a similar second set from Federer in his semifinal against Nadal, which was horrifying i mean people were apoplectic (laughs) yeah we got it but overall the quality of this final was you know i'm gonna skip the quality talk because that's not really even something i'm interested in a lot of times watching a tennis match it was gripping it was entertaining wild dramatic it was enjoyable to watch there's so much to dissect and and take away from the match without having to immediately try and put it into the pantheon of great matches i agree I have very little interest in doing that, but I will say it, I think it inspired and captured attention like few major finals have done on the men's side recently. Since 2017, Australian Open probably. Perhaps. So we're at a place where Djokovic's fans have not experienced a whole lot of heartbreak recently. Fed fans are down in the dumps and I feel for them. But since Novak's slump in 2016 and 17, he's won four of the last five majors. Federer and his fans should feel heartened somewhat in the midst of this tragedy. (laughs) Because Federer had two match points, played great. He he really did. For large spurts of it, looked good, beat Nadal in the semifinals, where Nadal was the betting favorite. A lot of the talking heads said Nadal would win that match. And Federer was the clear better player on that day. And some might argue the clear better player in the final as well. For huge stretches of the final, Federer was the best player in the world. 
And it shows you just how unique tennis's scoring system is, first of all. And secondly, just how incredible Djokovic handles important points. Because there were many times watching it where you thought, well, Federer deserves to win playing like this. He played... Deserves is a loaded thing. Sure. But the point is, Djokovic did better on those key points and those tie breaks. And Mm -hmm. that made the difference. Despite losing more points, despite only having 54 winners to Federer's 94... Djokovic barely broke even in the winner's errors category. Mm -hmm. And you know on grass, that's like not necessarily difficult to do. So that that was a stat that stood out for me, that over the course of five sets, that there was just a plus two margin and Federer was winning all these other categories, but still lost. Mm -hmm. And where it becomes super tragic for Federer and his fans, and I actually do feel, I feel for them, because... Federer had that match on his racket. In that fifth set, serving with the break, two aces to go up 40-15, double match point, and then he plays two piss-poor points. Djokovic didn't win those points. Mm -hmm. He won the second one. Well, the first one, Federer gets the the second serve in, return to the middle of the baseline. Federer tries to sidestep and move around to hit an inside-out forehand, and he sprays it wide. And then on the second one, Federer rushes the net on a poor approach shot. There's no other way to describe mm-hmm. it. Yeah. And I, I look back at it and I watched it in the moment. Well, I listened to it in the moment and then I watched it afterward. I made sure to go back and watch it. He may have benefited from a little bit of time in between points. He, he just kept going right. in those moments. Which and, is his style. That is his style. But like, my God, with the history on the line and... The gravity of the moment, beating Djokovic on that court when nobody really expected you to, you know, deep Mm -hmm. in a fifth set after having beaten Nadal, playing almost five hours at that point, like take a breather. I don't know. It it, it, it was crazy to me. Like I cannot imagine what it must have been like for a Fed fan to live through that moment. Like we've all had our faves Mm -hmm. lose tough battles before, but never with father time so close in the rearview mirror of course you know he had nine wimbledons on his racket federer is a student of tennis history you know this is what he was thinking probably at some points during the match tying martina navratilova these men don't give a fuck about women's (laughs) records what are you talking about (laughs) i kid i kid uh but back to the that point specifically Djokovic's forehand cross-court was absolutely killing Roger, and for him to rush the net on a not-very-good-approach shot and just get passed like that was a, a small mental lapse in a match where he could not afford mental lapses, because he was playing nearly at the peak of his powers, and these little things Djokovic can do to just chip away at you. You know that you either have to finish the point with a great winner or grind away with him. Who, I mean, who is fitter than Djokovic in men's tennis? Not many people. That moment also happened against the backdrop of Djokovic doing this to Federer twice before. Yeah. Albeit many years ago at this point, but this is this is a matchup that has not been kind to Federer in big, big moments, right? Mm-hmm. And that's where I felt perhaps a little bit of extra time could have helped him. I'm not a tennis player. I've never been in those situations. Easy for me to sit here and say that, but it was 
it was wild. The whole thing was wild. As somebody who was watching it without a vested interest per se. Mm-hmm. I know a lot of people have been running with this concept that Federer won almost every single stat on the stat sheet, which is absolutely jarring to see. He had more aces, hit 25 aces, better serve stats all around, broke seven times, seven times. And having those match points on his serve, Roger is the kind of player that you you trust. Like who in in his prime in tennis history would you trust more to serve out a match at Wimbledon? And to at least win one of three tiebreaks in a five-set match. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that just killed him. Novak even said after the match that he was playing for the tiebreak mm-hmm. in the fifth set. Yeah. He was, I mean, he was just surviving. And I think the stats kind of tell that story is that even if he wasn't playing his best tennis on that day, he knows when to turn it on. It's, I mean... He knows the positions he has to put himself in to succeed. Mm-hmm. The, for me, the telltale sign where it was over was the panic that I saw from Federer in his shot making at the start of that fifth set tiebreak. He got himself to net and he tried to change direction on a half volley drop volley and the ball went way left it wasn't even close it was it was crazy to me uh, yeah because if he could do it again and he watched the tape it would have been like okay let me just hit a clean half volley i don't even care where it goes like let me just get it in so this is the first time we've ever seen the traditional 12 point tie break at 12 all in the fifth set at wimbledon every major has well, a seven point tie break at 12 all yes but they call it a 12 point tie break okay like because seven to five is okay. Got yeah, it. okay. I don't know why they call it that, but it to me it felt uh, a bit anticlimactic for a match of this stature. I kind of I understand like we don't want to be out here all day, and it's clear why this rule was created. But the players were still a bit confused. They weren't totally like Novak wasn't totally sure when the tiebreak happened at twelve all because now all four majors have a different policy for five set matches. And I wanted more, like I wanted maybe uh, fastest to 10 points. You know, it, it... A super tie break for me is what was needed there. Yeah. It's on the players to know what the fucking rules are. That's just a bottom line. Like we're yes. all, not we, they are all professionals out here. And the biggest, most established professionals most likely to find themselves in that position. Mm-hmm. Like Richard Gasquet is not out here worrying about what it would be <laughs> like to play a 12-all tiebreak in the fifth set of Wimbledon final. Okay. You know, like, these are the guys who should know what's going on. And uh, the fact that it was anticlimactic, that's on Federer, frankly. Well, sure, sure. But it just felt like, I don't know. I, maybe I'm in the minority. I know people for a long time have complained about the U.S. Open's fifth set tiebreak policy, that it's just kind of like, mm. you know, you get to the end of this entertaining long match, and then you just have this little tiebreak, and that's all. Also, the women's final had to be played. The women's doubles final had yep. to be played. It had already been pushed back one day because of the five-set doubles yes. match. Yes. Men's doubles final. That took almost like, five hours. This could not go on much longer. Like, it needed to end. I know that. Like, okay. in my head. Just the experience of watching it. You want, mm-hmm. Does that make sense? I, 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 I guess. Maybe because it all seemed to slip away so quickly for Federer early in the tiebreak. That made it feel even... Like, was going by even faster. There was a sense of inevitability about it after those match points yes, were lost. Mm. And for some, myself included, it, it felt miraculous that Federer was able to still 
whole serve serving from behind to get it to 12 all. Yeah. That was an achievement in of itself. Mm -hmm. And so you get to that tie break and you say, well, maybe there's some more magic left. But for me, when that half volley drop shot went awry, that was like the writings on the wall. And yeah. it really sped away from him after that. In this era of tennis, if you're a fan of the big four or Serena, we have been so spoiled for choice. Like we have seen our favorite players have these incredible moments so many times. And a lot of people brought up this match was kind of a mirror image of the Roddick Federer Wimbledon final in 2009 and how excruciating it was to see Roddick get so close. And Federer was just immaculate. And so now Federer is on the other side. He's what, 38? 37? He's turning 38 in like a month. Sure. But a few weeks. <laughs> he knows how few chances he will have left at this. But who's to say? Like, he looked in great shape. He played incredibly well. Who's to say he can't do that next year? What is, what is your I'm point? I'm just saying it is heartbreaking for Federer fans in this moment, but Federer, Djokovic, Serena have inflicted so much pain and heartbreak on other fandoms that, uh, I don't know, it's just like, that is sport and it's hard, but the, the world turns. Unless you're out here in the business of being pressed about Grand Slam tally counts, my gut reaction at this point is to just get over it. <laughs> wow. It's so insensitive. No, it's not about being insensitive. It's about it's it's diminishing the actual achievement of these players. Mm. Nadal making the semifinal back-to-back -back at Wimbledon after all he went through. Incredible. Yeah, he didn't get to add number 19 and by extension keep Djokovic at 15 and Federer at 20 and like keep a good jockeying position in the in the all-time tally rank but it, it's great like as a fan you saw some great tennis great achievements when we we put so much focus on these these moments these these losses i feel like it it adds to the actual pain mm. of the player and the moment <laughs> for them like it, it's it's too much pressure like it sucks for us as fans, but maybe we should collectively do a better job of just moving on. <laughs> because we've had so many yeah. great moments. We've, ex as a, say, a Rafa fan, we've watched him win 18 slams. That after thinking he may be done at 14. Federer the same, done at 17, now he's 20. Like, you're getting so many bonus slams, right. and it's never enough. Yeah. And that said... It is really hard to be agnostic as a fan or neutral, and we're in a, a pretty particular era where there are players fighting for GOAT status. That doesn't happen in every decade in tennis. So people are invested. They want their player to be considered the GOAT, but we don't know who will when all is said and done, or if that even matters. And we come, well, I can speak for myself. I come from it from a place of being totally disinterested with this GOAT business. Mm, right. Especially as it pertains to the slam tally. Like, that is so uninteresting mm. to me. Djokovic played not his best, obviously, in this match. I think it speaks volumes that he was still able to win. Like, right. that's an incredible achievement. Like you said, what he's done over the last five slams, winning four of them, another incredible achievement. It looks like he's just winning slams at will. And it's not even hardcore slams. You know, two Wimbledons in a row after having a putrid season and a half well it's not just winning them at will but winning them by his will at this point right. which is what he right. did in this event there's positives to be had if you're a Djokovic fan 
he won this tournament without playing anywhere near his best. Federer fan, he played above any level that we could reasonably have expected to see from him Mm -hmm. under those conditions of needing to beat Nadal and then Djokovic and to come that close. Like, that that's an incredible result. Yeah. What else happened in the men's tournament, second week? We had Kei Shikori reach another quarterfinal, losing to Roger Federer in four sets. Matteo Berrettini followed up a great clay season, a grass title, made the round of 16 against Roger Federer, and then... Played one of Poof. the worst <laughs> matches you'll ever see on a tennis court <sighs> that involved somebody trying. Yeah, I really... Kind of feel bad for the guy. It was a stinger. Mm-hmm. Like, it was it was actually incredible to watch. I take no pleasure in saying that. The immensely talented Guido Pea, Pela, sorry, Argentinian, beat Milos Raonic in the round of 16. What? Milos, what? What is going on? What's your question? There was no question. It's a statement of fact. No, but you you prefaced it by saying the incredibly talented. He is. Blah, 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 I mean, blah, ha- blah, blah, blah. Like, his shot making is really... This can match, be out of this, this world. This match was a choke. <laughs> like, there's no two ways about it. Yeah. Milos Raonic up two sets to love on grass. Perhaps we saw the the disadvantage of being in and out of the tour so much due to injury, not yeah. having as much match play. But under normal circumstances, if we were to be charitable to Milos with this loss, that would not have happened. Mm-hmm. Bautista Agut had an amazing tournament, beating Hachanov in the third round. Benoit Pair in the fourth, then beating surprise quarterfinalist Pela and losing to Novak, but winning a set. Did well to win that second set. He had already made plans to have his bachelor party in Ibiza, and that had to be cancelled. Those fellas had to fly to London for his semifinal. <laughs> yes, and they were then dubbed the Ibiza Six by oh American media. Sam Query made the quarterfinals after beating Tennis Sandgren. That was a joyous match to watch, <laughs> I assume, because I didn't watch I, it. I don't know. Who knows? So in the quarterfinals, he he played Rafa Nadal, and Rafa broke him six times, twice in each set, and handled him pretty easily. Yeah, yeah. Which, going into the match against Federer, I thought that was a very good sign, and it just wasn't Rafa's day. I don't know how else to say it. He just didn't really play a very good match against Roger, and the game plan just wasn't working. You say that, but then he still got to a first set tiebreak. He had two mini breaks against Federer's serve early in that first set tiebreak. Yes. And then ended up losing at 7-3. The, so the first set was extremely competitive. If he's able yes. to pull out that first set, he speeds away with a second set 6-1. That's a totally different ball game. Like looking back on the match, you say, well, this really wasn't that close. But Rafa had his chances. No two mm-hmm. ways about it. You, I mean, you never know. Had Rafa won the first set, maybe Federer wouldn't have put in that absolute stinker of a second set. We, we just don't know. Rafa with a one-set lead in best-of-five-set matches? Damn near impregnable. Okay. So there's, I'm just saying. It, it goes to show just how small the margins are at this elite level. Okay. I'll, I'll accept that. You'll accept that? Mm-hmm. So in the semifinals, then, you had Djokovic playing Bautista and winning in four. And then Nadal losing to Federer in four in the semifinals. Mm-hmm. That's how we got to championship weekend. Yeah. The people in charge of tennis and in charge of promoting tennis are always thinking about where is it going next? Because that's their job. How are we going to promote the sport when these big three retire? And I mean, I don't think they expected them to be around this long. But the next gen and that kind of lost generation, 
had a, a surprisingly bad tournament, just kind of all around. You know, Zverev losing early, Tsitsipas, which was a big surprise for me. Dominic Team losing to Query, which, okay, like not not horrible, obviously. But even on the women's side, right? But still, the way he lost was not good. Right. And also losing in the first round of Wimbledon for two years running. Not mm. great. After making the French Open final again and winning, what did, what did he win? Indian Wells? Yes. Like, he's had a great year. We thought that that team was maybe on a different trajectory now. Mm-hmm. Like, he had finally taken off and then that. <laughs> right. So, again, I think in men's tennis... The future is a little bit unclear. I think you can point out these are the guys who I think are going to be great in the future, but they're still waiting on the big three to retire. It's like nobody can make real headway. The future will be crystal clear once they retire. Yeah. And for me, I've seen a lot. We've talked about this on the show before and a lot privately, and we've seen it a lot on social media recently, especially after this tournament. What does it say about the rest of the ATP tour when these three are still doing this? Are they playing that well? Like we know that the the advancements in technology allow players to play longer mm-hmm. and they know how to take care of their bodies better, but is their game as good as it was? Is like Federer as quick? Is he as agile and nimble? Does he handle pressure situations as well as he did? Same goes for Nadal. Right, I think they're giving you more opportunities now. They're still excellent, they're still peerless, but, you know, there are cracks. Like, there are small openings. I just I find it hard to believe that there's such a large gap between everybody else and them, as exhibited by this tournament in particular. Mm. Like, how how are you here, ATP? <laughs> I, don't, I just don't understand. Yeah. Yeah, I think the the criticisms of the ATP are warranted. They're fair, especially in relation to the WTA, where every bad match is considered emblematic of the sport as a whole, of women's tennis as a whole. Let's be clear. The women's semifinals were total stinkers, both of them. But we have the seen... The final was terrible. Too. Well, yes. 56 minutes. But we've seen uh, a lot of majors recently where the men's semifinals and quarters were boring where the big three is just rolling over people badly. I mean, Nadal beat Souza, what, 6-2-2-2? Better beat Berrettini, um, not even as close as that poor scoreline suggested. Uh, right. So it it's just unfair to hold up one match as say, saying like, wow, the quality of men's tennis is so amazing. How can the women expect to be paid the same? When that is one match between two of the greatest who ever lived with incredible consequence but we said before like when these three retire the atp is gonna have i think a bit of a hard road shall we get to the delightful women's final (laughs) i think this is the first time in history that we've done the men's stuff first isn't Uh, it possibly the well probably not french open stuff maybe sure at some point it's a rare occurrence the women's final and the women's semifinals, as we said, were not amazing. Simona Halep was pretty amazing, but mm-hmm. the matches themselves were not compelling whatsoever. And I know what you're going to say. You're, you know, you assume that I'm heartbroken and bitter and all that, but I don't have it. Like I do not have the energy anymore. I have spent it all on the 2018 U.S. Open and the 2015 U.S. Open. Losses do not do not draw it out of me anymore. 
you have no idea what I'm going to say because that's not it. I'm going to say two <laughs> things. Okay, okay. One, I want to disavow folks of the idea, the temptation to undercut Simona Halep's performance in that final because it was incredible. Mm. Oh, are you preempting me right now? Anybody would be listening <laughs> to this segment. It was incredible. Like what she did on that stage, three unforced errors the entire match, thwarting a Serena Williams that didn't play as poorly as the score suggests. I don't care what anybody wants to say. You know, I'm on this kick where I always say now that when when your fave or when somebody you expect to win doesn't, it necessarily is correlated to how well the other person is playing on the other side mm-hmm. of the net. And you just don't expect somebody like Simona Halep to be able to to throttle Serena like that. But that's what she on did. On grass. On grass, but that's what she did. And I'll get to that a little bit later on. It's not as surprising as you would think. Remind me to, to come back to mm-hmm. that. The other thing is, we talked about this on the previous episode. I brought it up, and I'm going to put you on the spot here again. Because I think if we're talking about correlation, there is a correlation between you talking shit about having a chill year and awakening the beast inside of Simona Hollow. Oh, really? You think I made that happen? I, I think there's like something... Like she heard it? She heard it. She felt the vibrations She's out or here something. listening to the body serve and she's like, I'm going to show that bitch what's yeah. what. I We have already discussed this. I'm not going to walk it back again. It was painful enough the first time. She did that. That's That's the bottom line. <laughs> She did that. <laughs> how many times, how many times can Serena get passed at the net with a Simona cross-court backhand until she stops? No. Until she finds another no. strategy? This was not the 2016 Australian Open being passed all over the place by Angie Kerber. She, That's not what this was. Uh, I watched it. I saw a lot of Simona backhands that just blazed past Serena. Yes, this was Simona Halep getting to balls regular folk had no business getting to and doing something with it that she had no business doing with it like it was crazy any other person on any other day would not have been doing that like we saw incredible stuff it was that good that's what i want to get across i know it's tough mm-hmm. to hear but it's not just a no it's not tough to hear it's I not just... just a failure of strategy on serena's part a lot of times she was in the right place doing the right thing and simona did something unforeseen sure sure it's only two sets it goes by very quickly this match i got i thought this match was going to last like 45 minutes the way it was going simona is super quick she hit a lot of winners i just didn't see i didn't see the digging the thinking through points that you know there was so much from serena mentally that i feel like she didn't do Mm-hmm. The thing that the two things that are jarring from a Serena perspective is is seeing somebody not only be able to stick with her from the ground, but outmaneuver her from the ground and overpower her from the ground. Well, I mean, I don't know about overpower, but okay. Mm-hmm. So there's that, and then there's also the combination of how poorly Serena served and how unpenetrative her serve was. Because even if her serve percentages weren't that bad, she wasn't hitting aces. And when she did get the ball in play, Simona was reading her serve like I've never seen somebody read her serve before. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so what does that have to do with? Does it have to do with Serena not placing the serve, mixing it up as much as she should? Or does it have to do with somehow Simona having watched enough tape to be able to read her serve now in ways that nobody really has ever been able to do 
through the course of her what 23 year career right. i don't it was know. bizarre i mean even a lot of coaches of women players say that serena's especially her upper body is totally unreadable maybe you can look at her feet sometimes and guess where she's going but based on the toss and where her chest is pointed you you really have no idea maybe simona was just guessing at patterns possibly and also i think that serena was going for percentages Mm-hmm. And maybe on the back of previous finals experiences, she felt compelled and comfortable enough against an opponent like Simona, given her head-to-head record, that if she were able to get get points started with decent to good serves, that it would have been enough. And it clearly wasn't. Right. And by the time she gets into the second set now and has to, well, change her approach completely and try and summon that big, booming, unreturnable serve, it's hard to summon when it's it's not what you've been doing all along. Mm-hmm. Serena talked about the, the balance that she's been able to strike leading up to this final, rediscovering that balance between being, being calm and also assertive within a match. She was asked a couple of times, is it the case that once you, you realize that you've gotten to a place of a certain calm that you know you're going to able to to get through a match or win a match or reverse course. And she said sometimes, but it also is a delicate balance because sometimes if you're too calm, then things get away from you. And there was nowhere to hide in this final because by the time, the, like the momentum had, had shifted, didn't even shift, the momentum was with Simona the entire time and to try and stymie that on grass, where things happen so quickly, it, it was too much to ask. Mm-hmm. Yeah, against a player like maybe Muguruza or Pliskova, I would have thought, okay, these power players either are going to start missing or Serena's going to start figuring it out and start dictating. But against Simona, it I expected her to open the second set with some massive service games, digging deep in Simona's serve games, getting some break points. I really expected the match to shift to at least have a competitive second set. And it did not happen. We saw Serena... There was a game or two. A game yes, or two. there was, early in the second set. But we saw Serena dig against Yuvon earlier in the tournament, against Allison Risk, which was an excellent match. But in the semifinal, she didn't really have to work that hard. Barbara Streetsova went on to win the Women's Doubles Championship, but she had very, very little to show Serena in the semifinal. And I thought, watching that match... Although she wasn't challenged very much, her game looked, it looked pristine. It looked gorgeous. And to me, it it looked the most beautiful it has looked since 2017. The most compact, the most assured. Mm -hmm. The problem for her with Simona and where I think Simona kind of unlocked something within herself on grass. And I do think it has something to do with a slightly slower surface. I know we don't have... Statistics. See, I, I played myself again. Yes, you did. Because I, I poo-pooed the idea that the grass is slow, right? After Rafa lost, everybody stopped talking about the speed of the, the court. Mm-hmm. Because that it's like there are these narratives about players, and there's only a few going around at a time. Even John Wertheim was sort of circulating this thing, well, Rafa can only win on slow surfaces. Which we know is not true. But we get to the final... And nobody's talking about a slow grass anymore after Simona won. But it's n- it's not slow, but it's slow enough to where Serena can't hit through 
Simona and her impeccable speed and defense. Right. That's where her speed and defense becomes an absolute weapon, a killer weapon on grass. Yes. Because her serve becomes better on grass, Simona, and her speed and her defensive skills become that much better than it than mm-hmm. it is on clay, in my opinion. And so when she's able to figure that out and feel her game, we've we've seen her in the past play absolute stinkers in big matches. We've been in the press room with her after her loss in Cincinnati. What was it, to Muguruza in the final? Yes, and then the following year to Burton's. And to say that I just couldn't feel anything out there. Well, if she's feeling something out there and she has all that to call upon in a match and the surface is helping her, then what can you do? Right. If you are not playing your absolute best. I think that's what we saw there. And I think it's a disservice to Simona to suggest that she's not built for grass. And I think it it helps her, obviously, that she's been made to or discovered for herself that she she can use the surface to her benefit and to accentuate the skills that she already has. Mm-hmm. And we're I mean, we're seeing counterpunchers win Wimbledon now. Kerber did it last year. But if you, let's say you're a player who has trouble penetrating with your shots, then grass might actually help. Like, your kill shots may not have to be as hard to skid off the surface, right? Whereas clay, you either grind out points or you can end it with huge, powerful strokes. Mm -hmm. Except I don't think we can label Simona a counterpuncher anymore. Really? We keep seeing that she's able to find more and more power. Okay. But I still think it's feeding off her opponent's power. Okay. And that's not that's not like a, a judgment at all. That's just a style of play, right? There's this idea that Serena should not be losing to Simona Halep, and it's a, a complete travesty that she would have allowed this to happen. My point in, in all of this is to say there are actual X's and O's, matchup situations, surface situations, proactive things that Simona did that contributed to this result. Mm-hmm. No, and I this is the reason I'm glad we waited a day to record because like morally I have a problem with making it all about Serena. Simona Halep deserves to take center stage in in the discussion of the women's final. So I'm glad we waited because I don't know if I would have been equipped to do that at the time. Are we going to talk about some of the problematic things <laughs> that we're feeling about Simona Halep? Yes, at this moment. That are preventing me from from really being happy for her. Things that we've talked about on this show before. I'm just, I'm tired, to be honest. I knew she was going to thank Jan Tyriak in her speech. I knew it was going to happen. Still annoyed when it did. The, the Cliff's Notes version of this is that Jan Tyriak has been a pig for as long as he's been in the public eye. He's insulted Serena Williams specifically. He is currently suing the Women's Tennis Association because he doesn't want to pay equal prize money to women at his own tournament. Like, this guy is a problem. But Simona feels deeply indebted to him. I don't know if they're close personally, but professionally, she feels a very close kinship, obviously. And I think there's a lot of pressure. You can say there's a lot of pressure from her federation, from her country. But at the end of the day, like, do you have any moral fortitude whatsoever? You are a former number one a two-time slam winner who has gone on the record saying like you don't really give a shit about equal prize money it's it's so soured 
my opinion on her. To be more precise with her words, it was more in the vicinity of, well, more people watch the men play. So, so I the, guess. It was the rough and it all argument. So let's say uh, Coco Goff generated a lot more interest, better TV ratings in her third round match. Would Rafa surrender prize money to her? Is that how that works? Because he says whoever brings in the most revenue should make more. It's an unmistakably bad look <laughs> to have somebody be the face of the WTA at this event and have that baggage with them. Yes. To be aligned so closely with somebody who is antagonistic toward women's sport, women's tennis, and the WTA, and can only uplift Simona Halep. Only. L- literally. literally. Only. Go back and, and look at those trophies at Madrid. And it's also entirely self-serving because the more Simona wins, the more these men can piggyback off of her success and mm. make money. Because they're, they are Romanian tennis. So in a sense, I get that Simona's interaction with them is unavoidable. Mm-hmm. To an extent, like I will accept that. And I do accept to an extent that the Eastern European socio-political dynamic of equality is totally different from where it is in North America. Yeah, what we expect from Western feminism and mm. that kind of thing. There are a lot of different things at play, a lot of, well, whatabouts that I could accept a little bit. But the totality of it now is we are left with this future Hall of Famer who is not going anywhere who continues to further cement these antagonizing figures who undercut the tour that she works on, right? Mm. (laughs) I I just wish uh, there was a little bit more of Lee Na in her. And I think what what we're missing after Lee Na retired is bigger than we understand right now. Well, why can why can we have uh, an aware fifteen year old being very vocal about social issues, but we can't have a former number one and current two time Grand Slam champion face of the actual tour being able to speak to these issues or even be asked about these issues? Yeah, because time and time again, for as much as people want to denigrate Serena and say that she's in this all for PR and her activism is fake and her this and that. She has been one of only really three women to consistently speak up for the tour and advocate for the tour. Serena, Venus, and Vika. Those are the three. But we don't even have people asking these questions of somebody like Simona Halep. Like we had that one instance where she was mm. asked about equal prize money. And it's almost like, well, we're not going to get a good soundbite. We're not going to get a good clip. It's not going to look good for the WTA tour. Yeah, yeah. In the meantime, we just hope that folks aren't paying attention to the parades with Tyriac and Nastasi after she goes back <laughs> to Romania. The time when she's bigging up Tyriac for his birthday, talking about how he's wonderful, this, that, blah, blah, blah. Like literally Anytime she gets. You don't get the sense that this is one of those things where, well, she just has to do it. (laughs) You know, I I don't really want to, but like, I just have to kiss the ring here. And no, it's literally any moment she gets. Like, she feels a kinship with these people and a gratitude to them for getting her to where she is. Mm. And that's where she becomes a problematic figure for me. And as much as I enjoy her game and I, I, I wish her success and I'm happy for her success... Like, this is always going to be a mitigating factor for me. Right. Because it's untenable as far as I'm concerned. And when you have 
Serena Williams being asked that absolutely asinine question at the end of her press conference about whether or not she needs to take time off from being a celebrity and also from her work for social justice Mm -hmm. in order to focus on her tennis career. This is not a consideration for other women. Sure, Serena puts herself in that position, but it's also expected of her. It's expected of every person of color within every work environment in which there is inequality. Mm. That's the way it works. Well, we know already that women have an outsized responsibility to be activists in women's tennis. Like, we expect much more of Simona Halep than we would Rafael Nadal, for example. The tour was founded on activism. The, The foundation, the founding of the tour was a political act. Yes, but what I'm saying is that women have this burden to be more political because they have had to fight for what they have, right? Mm -hmm. And even further, like, black women are expected to be advocating for social justice at every turn as a more marginalized group. So when Serena speaks out, she is taking the risk to be criticized. When someone else doesn't speak out, they're taking the risk to be criticized because they are, God forbid, called an Uncle Tom or you know, somebody who's totally disengaged. So you really, like, cannot win in this situation. I mean, you can win. You can chop down umpire chairs and not have to well, deal with consequences you can laugh about. And then you can also go on to say that you're just here for yourself. You're not trying to be a role model to anybody. That's true. You, and you can be white. You can be Karolina Pliskova and do whatever you want free of consequence. Yes. So my point here is that the rules do not apply to everybody. Okay, enough. We're not going to beat on her anymore, Ms. Halep. <laughs> I, here I thought it was going to be me. There were a few kind of stinkers in the women's second week, but in my mind, Plichkova Mukhova was probably the match of the week. Mukhova has been on your radar for a long time. She's kind of your girl at this point. Since the U.S. Open, mm-hmm. I told you that as far as doppelgangers go, she reminds me of a mix of... Dinara Safina and Chrissy Everett. Yeah. And you were like, Chrissy Everett. And I said it publicly, and people were like, yeah, yeah, I see that. Right. This match was crazy. Plishova broke very late in the third, served for it, and Muhova broke her at love. The uh, best serve in women's the, tennis. The ace queen, according to her. The best serve wasn't yes. able to do it. No. Broken at love. To me, this is such a huge missed opportunity for Plishova. At the time, it, it seemed even bigger, but after seeing what Simona Halep was able to do, maybe her draw was a little bit more difficult than I gave her credit for. Looking at it, having Halep and Svitolina as the big players in your half, I thought that was easy, but <laughs> apparently it wasn't. But Pliskova, I feel, has let a lot of good draws go, and I'm just kind of wondering, like, if and when is she going to make the next step here? Halep had... Not to go back, well, let's go back to Halep for a second here. Mm. Halep had an incredible run. Oh, absolutely. She beat Sasnovic in the first round in straight sets, beating Buzarnescu in three sets. That was her toughest match of the week. And then she completely dismantles Azarenka in a match that looked very grim for Vika. Yes. As far as, well, where does she go from here? Well, and I said this is Vika's opportunity to really turn her career around. I, I thought she had a legit chance against mm. Simona. She goes on to then play Coco Goff, beats Goff in straight sets, I believe 6-3, 6-3, then plays Zhang in the quarterfinals, a match against straight sets, but she was down 4-1 in that first set and flipped a switch. Mm-hmm. Easy semifinal again over Svitolina, my god. Who was resurgent. Yeah, Svitolina was with her for the first couple games, and that was it. 
once Simona was able to get through that, then it was speeding to the finish line. And then she does that to Serena in the final. Like the it it it, it was a wild performance for her <laughs> yes. this this past two weeks. I want to shout out Alison Risk. She's the person I was most impressed with, aside from Coco Goff, these past two weeks. Because Alison Risk has a reputation of really only showing up on grass. Mm-hmm. This was her time of year to shine, and did she ever. Not only did she get to the quarterfinals to play Serena Williams, but she got there by beating Ash Barty in straight sets. Yes. On grass. Who herself is a formidable grass court mm-hmm. player. And she gets to the quarterfinals, and this is the biggest moment of her career. She's won smaller tournaments before but here she is on a grand slam stage in a quarterfinal playing serena williams on grass and she was in no way cowed by the moment taking it to three sets never letting up at all serena had to bring close to her best to beat her on that day and you watch her in press afterward and she was so gracious and empowering of serena and american women and happy to be there and and confident that she gave the best of herself. Mm-hmm. Like that is such an incredible thing to witness when you're faced with a moment where the the significance of the moment, the the unknown of the moment, the bigness of it can just overcome you and 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 suffocate you into not playing your best tennis. She embraced it and showed out. It, well, I was really happy for her. Mm-hmm. And I kind of like the idea that she said, oh, of course I like that she said, oh, I hope Serena wins. But I like the idea that, well, this person beat me. If they can beat me, I hope they win the whole thing. Because I wanted to win the whole thing. She played some gorgeous grass court tennis. Just pristine. Joanna Kanta beats Petra Kvitova in the fourth round. And then she goes on to lose to Barbara Streetseva in the quarterfinals. And this set off one of the moments of the week. Yeah, shall we get into this? A reporter from The Express, we believe. It, nobody identified him mm-hmm. right off the bat. Trash. But, wow. We're just going to read you what happened. You can be the trash and I'll be Kanto. Okay, you want to do a dramatic reading? Sure. Joe, looking at the numbers of 33 unforced errors, and then you had a smash at the net, which you hit straight to her. And then towards the end of the third set, you had a double fault and missed a drive volley. Do you not have to look at yourself a little bit about how you cope with these big points? Because it's all very well saying it's all to do with your opponent, but there were key points when you perhaps could have done better. Is that in your professional tennis opinion? No, that's just as a watching spectator with everyone else on center court willing you on. Okay. Um, again, I and think... And the numbers are IBMs. Okay. I don't think you need to pick on me in a harsh way. I mean, I, I think I'm very open with you guys. And I say how I feel out there. And if you don't want to accept that answer or you don't agree with it, that's fine. But I still believe in the tennis I play and I still believe in the way I competed. I don't have much else to say to your question. I'm just asking you as somebody who presumably wants to go on from here, learn from this, and win a Grand Slam someday. Is it not something that you need to... Please please don't patronize me. No, no, you are. No, I'm not. I'm not. You are. In the way you're asking your question, you're being quite disrespectful and you're patronizing me. I'm a professional competitor who did her best today, and that's all there is to that. And the moderator says, let's move on to the next question, please. It was so bad. I read this first, and then when I watched it, it was so much worse. Like, the tone in this dude's voice. And then there was was some person who, who 
life mission that day was to go on everybody's Twitter account who was talking about this and tell them, well, what, what was she, what was the reporter supposed to do? Yes. Like, oh, it was a fair question. Okay. Like, Fine. I'm so sorry for the woman in that person's life because, like, my God. Oh, my Lord. Okay, the the comment that the numbers are IBMs was, like, the bitchiest, most petty thing I've ever heard. Because she had already made fun of his professional tennis opinion, so he needed to, like, clap back. And mm-hmm. say, oh, well, I got the numbers from IBM. <laughs> like, he might have might as well have just snickered. It had nothing to do with the numbers or the what he wanted to get from that question because mm. if you are a skilled reporter or a reporter with any deafness in your approach you can ask that question like hell i maybe i should con- maybe i should consult for these folks charge them a fee yeah. how to speak to women in press conferences without sounding like a complete asshole or honestly how to speak to anyone when i'm listening to questions i'm trying to understand what is what does the reporter want from this question Mm. because a lot of times they're looking for a very specific quote to fill out a story i have to i have to think like what did this guy want from the question is is that the reaction he was going for because i the question was so poor that it could not have elicited a very thoughtful response no you say that like if you talk to anybody and people are then saying well Look at how they spoke to Songa and the question they asked him. Yeah, that was rude as fuck. It was rude. It was also somebody who was speaking not not their first language. Mm-hmm. And it right. was a struggle for them to get the question out, which you don't get if you don't watch the video. Right. Right. There's more to it than that. This dude is a home, quote unquote, journalist being a complete ass to her. Like, don't you think? Don't you think? Like, are you mad? Like, I, I, I thought to myself, like, well, how would I have reacted if somebody spoke to me like that? And I really don't think somebody would in that situation, for one. Oh, okay. And even if they did, it would be so out of pocket and unusual for me that I'd be probably like super floored. Whereas Kanta is able to identify it right away because she presumably, and I, and I expect, sadly, that this is something that she and other WTA players have to deal with on an everyday basis. Mm-hmm. Men who are all around them as their coaches, their agents, uh, reporters, patronizing them. Yeah, and especially in the context of being a British tennis player, you have a lot of tabloids reporting at Wimbledon. I I just do not envy British players of any gender having to go through through this type of questioning when they lose at Wimbledon, because one day you are the heroine of the entire country, and the next day you are total trash, like you have been thrown out with the garbage. I think reporters should ask tough questions, but I don't think this was it. Because it it wasn't really probing anything very interesting. There's too much of a casual approach. That that's the first telltale sign when something like this is coming. The casual approach, especially with men, with the way they approach performing in these situations. Mm. It it speaks to the 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 sense of entitlement to that space and how much they manspread within that space. To be able to sit there and say, because it's all very well saying it's to do with your opponent. But there are key points you could have done better. All right. I mean, this woman has just revived her entire career from the brink of death. She like, just made the semifinal at the, at the French she Open. She was the runner-up in Rome. 
She had a very good performance here, beating Kvitova in the fourth round. And what is she supposed to say? Yeah, I played like shit and I should have beaten Streetsova in every given day of the week. No, but he wanted her to say, yes, I'm mentally weak. And that's something I need to work on. And if not that, disparage your opponent. Like the idea, the, the, the premise of this question is that Streetsova is undeserving of having beaten her in the quarterfinals and making a semifinal. Yeah. That's yeah. part of it as well. When you put it that way. And she's aware of that. Mm-hmm. Like it, it's just terrible all around. Yeah. Now, speaking of Streetsova, she and casual queen Shea Suwei won the women's doubles, beating Canadian Gabby Dabrowski and Zhu. Easily. Easy, quite easily. It was a very convincing win, but the match, nevertheless, was kind of exciting. There were a lot of compelling points. To me, I mean, I was there for Shea, period. Like, I was ready for Roger and Novak to get off the court. The women have been waiting for a full day to play this match. I want to see Casual Queen play is, some tennis. Is that your name or the, do other people no, call No, no, tennis. someone on Tennis Twitter oh, okay. in, invented that. And I apologize, I don't know who exactly invented it. Streetsova made the semifinals of singles at 33 years old after having hinting that this could be her final Wimbledon, goes on to win her first Grand Slam in doubles <laughs> and ascend to world number one in doubles. Right. Like that is called having a week. Right. So between that and watching, I mean, she can just, everybody talks about her lack of power and her bizarre game. The way that she can just guide balls to where she wants them to go is, is wild to watch because it's so unusual. And her prowess at the net during this final was amazing. Like, there were times I was sitting here alone. She's a lob queen, first of all. The (laughs) lob queen. But I'm sitting here by myself, practically, like, getting up on the couch, screaming at some of these points that she finished at net. It was just so exciting. In the mixed doubles, something to watch all two weeks was the perpetual assault on Robert Lindstedt by (laughs) Yelena Ostapenko. The assault on her opponents, on Lindstedt's back. His head? I mean, there, but there were periods where Ostapenko took control of matches. Oh, yeah. Like, single-handedly. Like, you saw the unbridled power that she has yeah. off the ground. It's yeah. incredible. She and Lindstedt made it all the way to the final. They beat the number 12 and number 4 seeds, losing to Dodig and Letitia Chan. Robert Farah and Cabal win their first major title together, beating the French team of Nicolas Mau and Roger Vasselin. I hope I pronounced that properly. I'm terrible at French. <laughs> and they're now world number one as well, after having won in Barcelona, Rome, Eastbourne, and now Wimbledon. Yeah, they've played together for years. I think they won their first title together five years ago. They had never been to a Grand Slam final. Which is surprising because I feel like they have been a top doubles team for so long. For a long time. And And apparently they've known each other since childhood. They're like brothers, basically. We talked about in the lead up to this tournament how Mao probably felt some kind of way after being ditched by Pierre-Hugues Herbert for Andy (laughs) Murray. And there Uh, he is in the final. We'll see if that pairing goes back together at some point. Yeah, He was there in the final, unfortunately getting smashed in the face in the crotch area or the midsection as espn called it it was a five set nearly five hour doubles match to me that is unnecessary and excessive (laughs) 
It just is. <laughs> You're like the only one saying that after this match because I'm, it was exciting. You find yeah. like honestly, like how many how many ways in which can women's tennis be disadvantaged and inconvenienced? Okay, okay. I just I just can't I I can't I can't keep it cute at three sets, best of three. That's that's mm. fine for me. I mean, Woody Harrelson was going through it. Hey, the, I should say, like the byproduct of that is that. The women's doubles final was televised after the men's final. Mm-hmm. It, maybe that's good. Maybe people stuck around and got to watch these amazing women play. You were saying about Woody Harrelson? <laughs> the camera found Woody and just never got tired of him. Because I didn't Because he either. was drunk slash high, <laughs> acting a mess, enjoying himself. Just amazed. A couple of etceteras before we finish up with Serena's Harper Bazaar article. Karbinia Muguruza has finally dropped Sam Sumik. After all of Tennis Twitter and half of the press corps has basically begged her to do it. Apparently the online petition worked with like 2 million Tennis Twitter (laughs) signatures. Uh, I guess we're on Coach Watch now to see who's going to be next up. But I can only imagine this is a positive change. It had to happen, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, Bernard Tomic has been fined his entire first round prize money of £45,000 for lack of effort. He was fined under the same rule as Anna Tadishvili at Roland Garros, which we spoke about. Uh, it, the rule is called first round performance, and it's meant to penalize people who take a spot in the draw that they had no business taking, basically. It's meant to encourage injured players to withdraw and accept half of the first round loser prize money. There, there was a lot of, of gray area here, right? Mm. It can be a very arbitrary penalty and this three set match against songa took only 58 minutes but wh- who who decides what is enough effort and and how because it's based a lot on the time of the match because the actual score wasn't as bad as the t- i'm sitting here trying to figure out how did they finish that match with that score line right in like, only 58 minutes yeah it's crazy and and i'm like we know that Bernard Tomic the Tank Engine is a thing. Like, this is... (laughs) Yes. It's not new. At the same time, he earned his spot in the draw. Right. But the idea is that you earn your spot in the draw and you collect half of your prize money by not playing. Top players... Listen. Top players tank sets all the time. All the time. To paraphrase Hazel London. Like, should Djokovic have been fined one-fifth of his prize money <laughs> in that final, uh, a prorated version right? for that second set? Like, it, it's it's a gray area. And when you have people making judgment calls on this, it it's, it's easier for them to get away with it, frankly, because it is Tomic. Mm. But I'm, I'm uneasy about it. I am because it, it invites all this this arbitrariness right and it's the sort of thing that not to beat a dead horse here but a player's union could have a field day with how can you penalize someone their entire prize money because enough people ruled that it wasn't their best effort it's just oh it's so murky right marina or sarah andy the teaming of andy the teaming of serena williams and andy murray did not make it out of the third round they won two matches they won two matches before ending up going out in the the following round it was one of the bright spots of the tournament it was it was fun it was Mm -hmm. fun to watch in their what second round match 
Serena, or maybe it was the first, I think it was the second round match. Serena was the absolute best player in court. Like, not even close. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Returning 138 mile an hour serves for clean winners. It was wild. And I'm sort of torn between let's have the top players team up and create these blockbuster teams versus let doubles players, like, make their their money and stay out of it, you know? (laughs) There are positives to both. I don't think it's a clear cut. I think it's a, a miss a misguided opinion to think that just because they're two top singles players that they'll make a good doubles team. Right, right. So and we I, saw I don't, they, I don't think know, they lost in their third match. I don't think it's that much of a threat to the top doubles players. And if you are a top doubles player, you should be able to deal mm. with it, okay. I think. During Serena's quarterfinal match with Allison Risk, Harper's Bazaar made the bizarre choice. See what I did there? Of releasing their interview, well, actually, their first-person narrative from Serena Williams. You don't get clever points for that. That was pretty lazy. (laughs) Uh, Releasing it during the match was interesting. She, as far as I know, this is the first time she's spoken on the record about the U.S. Open final. She posed for some unretouched photographs in the spread. It was, it was interesting. You know, there's a, there's a lot to unpack here and don't want to spend too much time on it because we have sort of closed the book on this. Mm Mm-hmm. One of the, the parts of note was when she said, in the end, my opponent simply played better than me that day and ended up winning her first Grand Slam title. I could not have been happier for her. As for me, I felt defeated and disrespected by a sport that I love, one that I had dedicated my life to and that my family truly changed, not because we were welcomed, but because we wouldn't stop winning. All good points. I... True points. Right. Like the not stop winning thing. Mm. Very true. There was kind of something for everyone in this article for haters, for people who love Serena, for the neutrals, and it will inform how you read it. You know, people have been screaming, begging for Serena to apologize to Naomi for months, and now we find out it did happen behind the scenes, which I honestly had assumed happened. I knew there had been some communication between the two, just didn't know what it was. Now, where where things start to go a little wonky for me is when Serena brings Naomi into the narrative and and I feel centers herself in Naomi's version of the story. Mm-hmm. And on the Keep It podcast, actually, they did a, a really good job from a non-tennis perspective looking at the story and saying, well, here's the things that sort of rub me the wrong way. Serena says that she wrote to Naomi to apologize. She, she wrote exactly what she said to Naomi in this Harper's Bazaar piece. And then she included Naomi's very gracious response. And I don't, know, I don't know if this was verbatim. It was presented that way. But Naomi supposedly said, people can misunderstand anger for strength because they can't differentiate between the two. No one has stood up for themselves the way you have, and you need to continue trailblazing. So this for me is the part that I don't actually love about Serena's story. Because she goes on to say, now seeing her response, I realized she was right. Right. Because the thing that we've we've tried to present about this issue is that there's so many layers and to, so many facets. And to then distill it and boil it down to this one wrap-up moment, this one overarching thought, I don't think it's it. Mm-hmm. Because Serena acknowledges she felt very guilty about tainting this moment for another woman, especially another black woman. What, what sort of bugs me is that, to me, she's seeing Naomi's response as as a way to assuage the guilt that she felt when we can acknowledge that she didn't behave well, like that, that she, that Serena made bad decisions in that moment. And I think that's where this kind of misses the mark. There's truth in the, the reasons 
behind why Serena made those choices. And there's truth in the criticism and fallout from it. Right. And and if we step back and forget about all the emotions of that day, I think it can become clearer that what Serena did, even if she felt warranted, made Naomi's day worse. I'm not here to tell you that this is an, an absolution, that we can now finally put this behind us if we are Serena supporters, that this what's been oft termed ugly moment can be put to rest because it's now settled based on these words. Like, I'm not here to tell you that. What I can say is that it, uh, while the timing was not of Serena's doing, the way it was presented, and especially that part that you point to, reads and feels uh, more PR, more let's steer the narrative in this direction in a self-serving way than actually necessarily dealing with what happened head on yeah yeah because when when serena says i realized she was right referring to naomi i read that as i realize i was right <laughs> you know i even had to correct you uh, yeah because you had it written that is literally and, and, how and i was I like it. that's not what was said right right i wish that we had left it at a more complicated place because it is a really complicated situation mm-hmm. and there is there's no good outcome of that final maybe someday there will be but it is still very raw and still very complicated. In some ways, I don't think, and this may sound really bad, but I don't think Serena has enough distance from being Serena and her life experiences right. mm-hmm. within tennis and everything that's that's made her who she is, especially flaws and all. I don't think she has enough distance from that to be able to wrap this all up n- n- nicely or in a way that's that does justice to Naomi while still trying to advocate for herself and make the points that she wants to make. Mm-hmm. Like, it it would have been better off just putting the apology out there. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. It just, it wasn't, it wasn't quite it for me. So I think we've come to the end. Anything else you want to add? Any Love Island spoilers you want to throw out there? No. Let's just say Amber is our girl. From day one, I loved Amber. She's the winner to me. Her and Ovi. That's not how the show works. <laughs> I wish there could just be one winner and they didn't have to be coupled. I do have a question for you. And for I me? don't know if you're going to like it, but it's from oh, a listener who DM'd not. us. Okay. And it was actually just a, an interaction, a mention. At MCHL86 wants to know what our opinions are on the Djokovic reaction after winning the final. To me, it seemed like a bit of a fuck you to the crowd for not cheering for him. Mm. I loved it. <laughs> yeah, That's I've what s- he said, I loved yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. I've seen a lot of people talking about this, that his very subdued reaction was uh, kind of a reaction to this crowd that was a bit antagonistic and very, very pro-Federer. And of course, out on Hedman Hill, you hear people like cheering Djokovic's double faults and stuff like that. I don't, I don't know. Like, I'm not invested enough in the rivalry and in Djokovic's psyche itself to to know where that came from. That may have just been like, wow, I won five Wimbledons. Like, this is crazy. I want to just get down and eat this grass. And I think we have enough self-awareness to know that we are not unbiased enough to consume that sequence and present it in a way that's, like, objectively fair to Djokovic. Yeah. 
I think uh, the point is we have no idea. Mm-hmm. We, a... we, we've learned when to abstain. Yes. Know when to hold them, know when to fold them, <laughs> know when to run. What about the doubles winners having to accept their trophies in the in the box, the royal box? What is that? Can they not do that anymore? It's not new. Serena and Venus did of it. Of course it's not new. That's just how they do it at Wimbledon. But it's like when the Oscars were like, we're going to present these sound editing awards during the commercial break to me. Why don't they just accept the trophies in the bathroom? <laughs> so weird. Thanks for listening. We are glad Wimbledon is done. I suspect you are too. Oh my god, I need a break. You say that after every episode. That's true. <laughs> I do need a break. My name is Jonathan. You can find me on Twitter at tennis underscore John. And I'm James at Elliot JMR. Two L's, two T's. Find the Body Serve on Instagram, on Twitter at the Body Serve. Thank you to those who have given us reviews on iTunes. We appreciate you and we implore, beseech, request, just would love it if you haven't yet reviewed the podcast, if you could do so after listening to this episode. Deal? Till next time. Thank you very much. <laughs>